0: Hello everyone, this is Tara and this is God Talk with Tara. Um, I'm going to kick us off with prayer tonight and we're going to jump on in and see where the Lord decides to take us tonight. Father God, thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for hmm, for your presence in us, for the fullness of you, Father. Thank you that you have designed us to hold you and be filled by you. Thank you that you have designed us to pour you back out. Thank you, Lord, that you are a multiplying God. I pray tonight, Lord, that you would make me small and that you would make Jesus large, that you would minimize the self that is me and maximize, Lord God, the volume of your words and the fullness of your spirit the joy of your presence, Lord God, I pray that you would fill me, so that all who are listening would hear your voice, your words, the things that you want them to know, Lord God, and that in this conversation, in this time, that you would be revealed, and that we would see you. We ask in Jesus' name, and by your spirit, and all for your honor and glory, Lord. Amen. So tonight, um, I had a note from this morning. This morning was our next Methodism class that we've been doing for the past, I guess it's been 30 weeks now, and it seems like a really long time, Um, and it's been such a joy, and it's really funny because it doesn't feel like it's been that long, but it has, and we have been studying various concerns and um, ideas for how to strengthen the kingdom of God within the next Methodism, as uh, we've talked a little bit before, that uh, the United Methodist Church is going through a a bit of a breakup right now, and there's been a lot of strife and a lot of stridency, and the global Methodist Church that is coming out of that is really seeking to go back to the roots of, of Wesleyan Methodism. Um, and Wesleyan Methodism was really seeking to go back to the roots of the primitive church, as Wesley called it. So he did a lot of studying on the first years of the church um, and, and how the people of God functioned together and did things together. So that was kind of our class is looking at the ways that we've drifted over the years away from that original focus on scriptural holiness, on primitive Christianity, on, um, the authority of scripture and ways that we can recapture our reliance on the Holy Spirit, our desire for holiness, our desire for God. Um, and it's been an interesting and and really fun experience getting to be part of kind of a roundtable discussions every week on the different topics that are covered in that book. And one of the things this morning triggered a thought in my head as we were closing, and I can't even tell you what it was <laughs> that triggered the thought. Just that something in the conversation made me think about um, a concept two concepts, actually. We, I believe somebody had mentioned the grace of God, so that was the first concept that I jotted down that was part of what I was supposed to talk about, is that grace is the presence of God, and we must be holy as he is holy for his presence to abide in us without harm. Oftentimes, we, we think of grace as God's unmerited favor, which is not a bad definition of grace, but The more I have studied grace over the last several years, and the more I have studied Wesleyanism in recent uh, times, and Wesley was constantly talking about the means of grace. And the more I've looked at that, and the more I have understood how he intended that and, and how those things function, like the studying of God's word and the constant prayer and corporate prayer and private prayer and repentance and serving and just all of the ways Lord's, the Lord's supper and communion and worship, the way that these things function is to make space in us, to invite the Lord to make space in us for his presence to come, for the Holy Spirit to fill us. And so if these are means of grace, if these are the means that we have of, of, um, entering into God's grace, then to me that translates into it is the presence of God in us that is his grace. And it is the merited, unmerited favor of God is that he is with us. His grace is that he is with us, that that is the, mm, well, that is the perfection of God's grace is that he is with us. What more could we ask for? What more favor could he give us than that His presence would dwell in us and move through us and move with us. But the thing about God is God is holy. And in his holiness, unholiness cannot exist. Oftentimes we have this concept that God is unable to look upon unholiness Um, and we get that from, from some of the poetic parts of the the Bible. There's a scripture that talks about that. But if we really honestly look at the whole of scripture, we, we find that it's not so much that God cannot look upon unholiness because he looks upon unholiness quite frequently in scripture. We have Hosea marrying a prostitute so that God can make his point that Israel has been, um, Prostituting itself with other gods. We have Jesus going and meeting at the woman with the woman at the well who was very much a sinful woman. Uh, We have Jesus actually collecting several of his disciples from amongst very sinful people, according to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so it is not that God was unable to look upon sinfulness. It was that sinfulness cannot survive in the presence of God. And so if we are unwilling to be holy, then we can't be in the presence of God. And it it becomes a place where God cannot abide in us. We cannot allow the Lord to settle in us, He cannot allow Himself to settle in us, because in doing so He would destroy us if we are intent upon holding on to our sinfulness. And so this is the state that we find ourselves in. This is always kind of one of those things when, um, when we talk about in in the Old Testament, you have Aaron's sons are with, is it Aaron's sons? No, because that was earlier. Um, David is bringing the Ark back after it had been stolen. And the people traveling with the Ark reached out and touched it. And it says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and they were instantly destroyed from having touched the Ark of the Covenant. And there's a whole lot of theological stuff that goes into interpretation of that particular passage. But what always struck me about that is the destruction of the people who touched the ark was not necessarily because God was angry so much as they touched the holy dwelling of the Lord God Almighty in a state of uncleanness. Because if they were walking alongside of the the Ark, then they probably had not gone through the ritual cleaning and all of the other stuff that they did in the temple. Um, The Ark was not being carried properly. And so the way that it was touched was improper. And typically speaking, I don't believe the priests actually touched the Ark of the Covenant um, because it was the mercy seat of God and the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And the presence of God was physically harmful to his unclean people. This is why if you look at the Old Testament, you'll also see things about, you know, if the priests went into the Holy of Holies, they were very expectant that there was a possibility they could die from that, um, from going into the presence of the Lord, if they did not do a proper job of, of atoning for their sins and atoning for the sins of the people. And there was a whole complicated set of rituals that was in place for the purposes of allowing the people's representative to come into the presence of the Lord. Uh, So there is this whole complicated thing about the grace of God, right? the presence of the Lord. So the people of Israel had the presence of the Lord with them for a very long time. When they left Egypt, the presence of the Lord descended and guided them through their wanderings in the desert. He taught them how to build the tabernacle. He descended on the mountain to talk to, to Moses. And at that point, when God descended on the mountain to talk to Moses, He gave a lot of warnings for the people to stay off the mountain so that they wouldn't die from touching his presence on the mountain. And the people's response to that was to be fearful and to tell Moses to talk for them. We talked about that once before. And so the paradigm was set that there would be those who would keep themselves ritually pure, who would keep themselves very carefully to the law of the Lord and would still offer sacrifices on a regular basis to atone for anything that had tainted them so that they could be in the presence of God without running the risk of ending up dead. And the rest of the people were not allowed to come into the presence of God. They came through the the mediation of the priests, who took care to not be in a position where the presence of God was going to cause them harm but the requirement for that was the blood of animals and and the blood of animals you have to understand we think of that as blood and gross and and smelly um but the blood of an animal is the life Force of an animal. If you've never watched the Bible Project, I would really encourage you to go and look at some of their videos. Um, But that's one of the ones that they talk about early on in their Genesis series is what the blood of animals represented. And um, actually, I think it's probably Exodus where you start seeing that the blood of animals represented the life force of the animals, and that life force was sacrificed to cover the death of sin. In other words, to transform the death that was in people, the deadness of sin in people, the life force of animals was given to kind of counteract the deadness of sin in people. And so that's the old system. In the new system, Jesus came to be the final atoning sacrifice. And I want to talk a little bit because the other thing is not about just the grace and the presence of God. It is about contagion. So one of the results of sin in the world, one of the results of the rebellion of Adam and Eve was that corruption entered the physical world. And so we ended up with things like illness and death and other <clears throat> decay within the physical bodies and within the physical realm. And one of the things that happens with that is we have contagions that go from body to body sharing death. They go from body to body spreading illness. They go from body to body spreading, um, corruption. And it is necessary for us to do something to stop that contagion. And in our humanity, we tend to think of things like isolation and inoculation and medicine and all of those various things, but if we look at that, what we find is that doesn't actually stop the contagion of death, and it certainly doesn't stop the contagion of sin. But there was one who did, and Jesus did that in an interesting fashion. So instead of coming and trying to isolate sin, Jesus actually came and brought his own contagion with him. So God's answer to the contagion of Adam and Eve's corruption and sin and sickness and death was to manifest his own presence within human beings, particularly within Jesus as a human being. But Jesus then passed that on to others. And as he passed it on to others, the presence and the power that came as the Holy Spirit filled Jesus Christ created a life in him that was overflowing. So remember we talked the other day about John saying that Jesus was the light that gave life to men. Um, I'm probably paraphrasing that wrong, but you get the idea that Jesus was life. Jesus calls himself the way, the truth and the life. And there is a reason for that. So Jesus was the antithesis of Adam and Eve. Paul talks about that, that Adam was the first man and Jesus was the second Adam. He came to bring life where Adam had brought death, um, through, through one man, all, all died. And through the second man, all would live. And so Jesus brings a life force into the world that is contagious. And when he moves through the world around him, the contagion that he carries is a contagion of life. So we're going to look a little bit at Matthew. Um, There's actually several verses chapters that I brought up or several different sets of verses that I brought up, but we're actually going to move through a kind of large chunk from Matthew 9 into Matthew 10, and then we're going to, I think, just stop there as far as the scripture go and, and have a little bit of a conversation about that. So we're at the beginning here of chapter 9 of Matthew And it says, in getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Um, Jesus passes on from there and saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And then the disciples of John came. Um, We're going to skip that part because we've already gone over that and it's not quite relevant to what we're talking about. We're going to skip down to verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and crowd making a commotion, He said, "'Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping.' And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, "'Have mercy on us, son of David.' When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, "'Do you believe that I am able to do this?' And they said to him, "'Yes, Lord.' Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man, who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Um, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were uh, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. And he called to him, his 12 disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. We're going to skip on from there. And we're not going to go any further than that, because that is, um, that's really enough. So what happens next is Jesus sends them out and he tells them to proclaim the kingdom and heal the sick and raise the dead and cleanse the lepers and cast out demons. And they do this. They go out and, and they begin to carry the kingdom of God into the various towns around them. Now, what I to sh- want to kind of look at here is this concept of contagion. Um, so in the midst of these, you, you did hear that he had charged them to go out and heal lepers. Jesus, by this point in time, has healed at least one leper. There's going to be another point in time where he heals 10 lepers. And in the story of the leper, we already looked at that in the healing uh, sermon we did a while back, where Jesus touches the leper and the leper is cleansed of his leprosy. And he speaks to the lepers, the 10 lepers, and they go away. And on their way, they become cleansed. Jesus carries in him an authority and a force that is contagious. And so it says that he healed all the sicknesses and diseases of those that were coming to him. He healed the paralytic. So the life force of the the spirit within him is contagious to the point of healing those that are paralyzed. He healed the sins of the paralytic. So the life force that is in Jesus is contagious enough to even cleanse us from our sins. And then he healed the multitude. He healed death. The life force in Jesus Christ is contagious enough to heal death. And he does that on several occasions throughout the scriptures. Um, And so he's healing these diseases that typically, particularly when you're talking about things like leprosy, but this would have been true for fevers, like he healed Peter's mother-in-law. It would have been true for... So demon possession was not necessarily a contagion, but a demon possessed person very much would have been considered contaminated and they wouldn't have been somebody you wanted to touch. You would have had the woman who touched his garment and was healed. Um, An issue of blood would have made her unclean. It would have been someone, again, that you did not want to touch because in touching them, you ran the risk of taking on their state of uncleanness and of taking on whatever it was that was causing their illness. And so people worried about contagion. That was a big deal back then. That's why leprosy was such a big, huge thing. And they had to, you know, scream out leper, unclean, unclean, and tell people to stay away from them, was because it was a contagion that would make people really, really sick. And so to protect the people, you kept people separated that were ill. Um, to protect the people, you kept people separated that were unclean. And what Jesus was doing here was demonstrating that the life force of God in him was stronger than the contagions around him. Not only was it stronger, it was catching. So Jesus's life poured out of him into those that were around him. It drew people from all around the areas. He tells the the blind men to go out and don't tell anybody, but everybody heard about what was going on and they were attracted to him. They were drawn to him because his power and his authority and his life were contagious and the people around him absorbed that life force from him. And that's the next thing that I kind of wanted to look at and why we looked at such a long piece of scripture here. So in chapter nine, what we saw was Jesus going through multiple situations and the life force within him, the Holy Spirit within him was reaching out and splashing all over the people around him, and bringing life instead of death was reversing the effects of sin and and sinfulness, the effects of corruption, the effects of sickness, the effects of death. The Holy Spirit was reaching out and touching and reversing those things. But then Jesus in chapter 10, he comes back to his disciples. He appoints 12 of them as apostles. And It's not just at this point in time that the Holy Spirit is reaching out and touching them and reversing death and sickness and illness and sin. He is actually reaching out and touching them with the power of that life force and giving them the authority of that power of that life force to reach out and touch other people. So not only is the life of Jesus... Contagious to the point of wiping out sickness and illness and diseases. The authority of Jesus, when we submit to his authority and we receive the Holy Spirit, the authority of Jesus is also contagious. So the life in Jesus comes to dwell in us and that same life that was in him is now in us And reaches out through us to be contagious to the people around us. So as we're faithful to the Lord, and he is faithful to us, this generates a pull on the people around us. It generates a draw on the people around us to see what is it that causes us to live the way we do. What is it that gives us joy? Joy is a contagious thing. So depression is contagious. Misery loves company. Um, We know this, that if you get around a lot of people that are down, you are probably going to wind up down. But truthfully, joy is more contagious than depression. If you have the indwelling spirit of the Holy God in you, and you have the fruit of that spirit growing in you, then you have the living force of the living God growing in you in ways that spills out on the people around you. And part of the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. And those things are contagious when they come from the Spirit dwelling in you and so when you carry the spirit of god in you when you are a disciple of jesus christ you are an ambassador for jesus christ and he appoints you as an ambassador for him to the people around you and he fills you with his holy spirit to be able to accomplish what he has called you to do to be able to carry the kingdom of god with you then you become contagious you become a walking outlet for the river of life and the tree of life. You become a place where the spirit grows the things in you that the world needs. And as you carry that out with you, it infects the spaces around you. It infects the people around you. When you walk in light and life and hope and joy and grace, and grace being the presence of the Lord in you, when you walk in all of that, you become contagious. You infect the world around you with the love of jesus christ with the peace of jesus christ with the joy of jesus christ um and i think that's all for tonight god is being short tonight thank you lord um i pray that you would think about that that we would recognize that we are and okay so we're not quite done that we would recognize that we are contagions. It's a funny thing that I say that because I was complaining about the fact that during COVID-19, we began to see each other as disease vectors um, and, and routes of contagion for an illness that everybody was terrified of. But the truth is, is you are contagious. Adam was contagious and Eve was contagious and they contaminated the entirety of humanity and all of creation with rebellion and corruption as a result of that rebellion. And you are contagious because of that. You are infected with that rebellion. You are infected with that sinfulness. Um, but that does not have to be the contagion you spread. You have the option of coming in contact with the contagion that is so much more powerful than that. When you choose, To come in contact with the living God, with Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, when you choose to carry your contagious state to them and allow them to transform that, then you become contagious with the love of God, with the grace of God, with the joy and the peace and and the forgiveness and the patience and the faithfulness of God. You become a contagion for the, the kingdom of God so we have a choice as people we can choose to hold on to the contagion of the sins of our choices Um, we can hold on to the the contagion of our darkness and our brokenness we can hold on to the contagion of our death and dying and corruption or we can allow God to transform us into the antidote for all of that. We can be made antibodies that go out and, and replicate and multiply. And drive out the corruption. And kill off the virus of disease. And kill off the virus of sin. Not on our own, but in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. And he will send us out, proclaiming the gospel, healing the sick, curing diseases, casting out demons, and cleansing lepers. Because that's what he does. He, all, he, he made us to be contagious. To be transmitters of the Holy Spirit. Let's all step into that. Father God, thank you so much for the way you have made us. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love. Thank you for your son who came to pour out his life force into us and over us and through us to make us a contagion of life in your creation. I pray, Lord God, that you would give us the vision for that, that we would see that. That we would step into that, that we would walk in that, we would be contagious to one another, that as Christians, Father God, we would encourage each other, that we would pour the Spirit back and forth into one another to strengthen that life within all of us, to resonate that life, Father, in ways that just makes it boil out of us and into the world around us. Lord God, I pray that we would become mm, overflowingly filled with the healing, Lord God, of your son, with the cleansing of your son, with the joy and the peace and the love, Lord God, that you have given us. We're so thankful, Lord, for all you do. We ask all of this tonight in Jesus' name and by your spirit and all for your honor and glory, Lord. Amen. Be blessed and be a blessing.